How are you guys doing today? We have like two claps. How are you guys doing today? Y'all know the drill. That means that you're supposed to say, I'm good. I'm so excited to be here because I am so excited to be here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Chad Ward. I am super pumped to be here kicking off week two of two of Summer in the Psalms. Uh, We've been doing this thing this summer where we've been taking uh, stories from scripture and then we've been accompanying them uh, with the Psalms that go with them. I don't know if you know this. I actually didn't know this until a couple years ago, uh, but I think that we kind of read the Bible in like everything happens in its chronological order, right? But a lot of the Psalms that we, uh, we see in this book, if you were to like pick them up, you could actually scatter them all throughout biblical history. So some at like the beginning and then some at the end. And so we, last week, Ali did an amazing job of setting us up in week one, talking about uh, David and Bathsheba. If you don't know that story, I'm going to sort of like recap that real quick. Uh, she gave a message a little bit on sin, uh, not necessarily like when we're going to sin or like if you're going to sin, like you're going to, but it's when you do, what do you do when you do? Do we uh, serve a God? Do we serve a father that is like, hey, I've messed up. I don't want him to find out about this. Or is it, hey, I've messed up. I need to run to him for help. So she gave an amazing message on what we do when we sin. And David, there's a Psalm that he writes right in the midst of this entire situation where he, the king of all of Israel, uh, sees a woman that is not his wife. It's actually somebody else's wife, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant and then kills her husband to try and cover it up. That's like the Sparks Notes version, right? Of uh, that whole story. But he does this and whenever he is essentially like confronted and then his friend or the prophet uh, calls him out essentially Nathan and saying, hey, this is in your life. The Psalm that he writes is a great representation of what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean that you have no sin, but it's what do you do or who do you run to when you sin? And so today we are going to be doing a lot of the same thing. Uh, We're going to be rewinding in the story of David. We're going to be going back uh, to whenever he first busts on the scene, uh, right in the beginning, right in the middle, actually, of 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to be looking at a psalm that is associated with that, uh, really to answer another question that might have come up uh, after hearing last week's message or maybe another question that you might've asked at some point in time, or maybe you've never put words to this, uh, but it's something that you might be thinking. And it's okay, so we're going to sin. What amount of sin like breaks me off from the promises that God has for me? Or is there anything that I can do uh, that will ruin the promises that God has made to me? And if there is, do I need to measure up or do I need to provide anything else to be able to get back inside that promise crew, right? Like the group of people that get to experience the promise that God has for me. Because some of you might be sitting here and it's like promises, I've made some, I've been a promise maker, but I haven't kept every one that I've made and not every promise that has been made to me has been kept. So how does God work whenever it comes to promises? And so what we're gonna do real quick is I am gonna take you through a brief history lesson. And I know you're like, this is summer, we're not in school, sorry. Uh, But we're gonna be going through a brief lesson and trying to get us up to speed to the story that we wanna talk about today. This is not something that I would do uh, with high schoolers. This is not something that I would do with middle schoolers or really other people in our church. But I think that college students, and I think that young adults, this is a perfect opportunity for us to be able to see this and to really get at what uh, this story is saying. So just to learn, we're gonna do this uh, brief history 
history lesson, so bear with me, strap in, uh, here we go. First Samuel 16, we see David the very first time. There's a guy by the name of Samuel, he's a prophet, and the king at the time's name is Saul. Uh, he's not cutting it, he's not cutting as the king. So God approaches Samuel and says, hey, I need you to go to Jesse's house. It's this guy out there and he's like, hey, I need you to take one of his sons, they're gonna be the king. So he goes out there and he examines the son and the first one's no good, the second one's no good, and then eventually none of them are good. And he asks Jesse, do you have any more sons? And he's like, hey, yeah, I have this young guy out in the field, you're not gonna want him, he's a shepherd, like he's just a boy, like he can't be a king, but he ends up being the king and that ends up being David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, David is anointed as king. But it's not so simple because I don't know if you heard, but King Saul is still the king. So like, what are you going to do? You have a king that's anointed and then you have King Saul who's still the king. Well, in 1 Samuel 31, Saul dies. He's in battle against the Philistine and he actually is critically wounded and ends up taking his own life and is out of the game. And then we open up the book of 2 Samuel chapter one and right in the very beginning, David finds out that Saul is dead. So there is no more king in Israel. There is no more king in Israel and he's the anointed king. He finds this out, but immediately he starts weeping and he's super upset because I mean, this is God's king that is dead. And you see a lot of David's character in this moment. It doesn't last long that there is no king because then you get to 2 Samuel chapter two, where David becomes the king over Judah. And I know what you might be thinking is like, Judah, that's a weird way to say Israel. It's not, but there's the Southern kingdom of Judah and the Northern kingdom of Israel. And all of this land makes up the land of Israel. And there's another guy who in here has ever heard of a kingdom? Everyone, you don't actually have to raise your hand. That's like a transit thing. But seriously, everybody's heard of a kingdom and who takes the reins over a king whenever a king dies? Typically the oldest male heir, right? I don't know if you know the story of David, but he was a shepherd boy. He has no claim to the throne. It's like me being the Prince of England. It's like not true. And so the David has that. And so there's a guy by the name of Ish-bosheth and he is the king over Israel in 2 Samuel chapter two. So you have this Northern kingdom, which is this guy. And you have the Southern kingdom, which is uh, Judah, which David is the king over. So you have somebody in Saul's inheritance and then David who was anointed by God. And the next several chapters is them at war constantly. There's a lot of betrayal. It's a lot of drama. Ali said last week that the Bible is full of drama. You got to read it. It's better than The Bachelor. It is. Like it's seriously, there's so much as betrayal and beheading. It's insane. And we get through to chapter five and eventually David's house wins and he becomes king over all of Judah and all of Israel. Then we move over to chapter six and the fighting has ended. And there's this thing called the Ark of the Covenant that is carried in a tent of Jerusalem. You might've heard this word in church, like the Ark of God or the Ark of the, like, what is that? Like Noah's Ark, how do they move a massive ship into like, I don't know how that works. Well, the Ark of the Covenant, just if you wanna know what it is, it is this chest, right? That is built out of Acadia wood that the stone tablets that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai are inside. And so if you ever hear about the temple or the Holy of Holies, that is what this turns into. It's a big, fancy way of saying, this is where they believe that God resides. And so they bring the ark into Jerusalem. So this is where you can go and talk to God. And this is where the priests would go and make sacrifices to God. And so this tent is brought from where they had it before into Jerusalem because David is now king and they're like sort of setting up shop, right? He's been the king over Judah for a little while. Now, several years later, he's the king over Israel. The ark is where it's supposed to be. It's always been with the Israelites. We finally have everything set up. And then we get into 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so I'm just gonna read out of this. If y'all wanna follow along in your Bibles, we have it right here on the screen, verses one through three. 
After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. So you have the king, right? And he has been so tired. Like he has been for years and years trying to regain uh, control of the kingdom. He was told like as a young boy, right? That he was going to be king. And then it's like 30 years later that he finally realizes his kingship over the land, all the entire land of Israel. And so he finally has a moment to rest. And as I'm reading this, I think about every single one of us, if you're in college or if you're working right now, those moments whenever you're like work, 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 and those busy seasons of life that really like stack on top of you. And then you take a vacation or for those of you that are on summer break and it's just like, I have nothing but Netflix. Like I have nothing that I have to do. I have nothing that is planned for my day. And those are the moments that like thoughts then begin to just like flood your head, right? It can be exciting things like trips that you wanna take or just things that you've never been able to think about. You can finally read a book that isn't like assigned to you. I might be the only one here who does that for fun, but like I do, but it's just these thoughts that flood your head. But then also for many of us, uh, being alone and at rest is one of the scariest places because then we actually have to deal with the things that we're going through, right? And these are the moments that anxiety begin to attack and different things like that. And so I want you to think about this headspace that David has a lot of thinking time that he may not have had recently. And so we see this and thoughts begin to flood his mind. It's like, you know what? I'm in this amazing palace. I'm in this incredible palace. And in the way that I envision it in my mind, this isn't in the text, but that he might like look out the window or he might step outside and see like his amazing palace and then God's shanty little tent over in the corner. And it's like, that is nothing. How can I be the king and be inside this palace, but then the God that I claim to worship is inside of a tent? You know what? Here's what I'm gonna do for him. I'm gonna make him a house. And so he checks in with Nathan. Nathan says, it's all good. But then we continue with what God says to Nathan. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place in a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so one of the things that st sticks out to me and it just jumps out at me in the page is this, did I ever say? Did I ever say? I have this friend, uh, real quick, side tangent, I have this friend. He lives uh, up in New York now, he just moved up there. But whenever we were freshmen in high school, his parents got divorced. Uh, it was super sad. I'm sure a lot of you in the room like, might be able to resonate with that story. And I remember walking with him through high school and that. And I never really knew his dad. He'd been doing long distance in there. So I honestly like, didn't know much about that situation going into it. But then we get into college and I've maybe met his dad two or three times and he's literally one of my best friends in the entire world. And we get to our sophomore year of college. Like we were freshmen and sophomore roommates. And he comes up to me and is like, yep, just got back from New York. I did Christmas with my dad. And I was like, okay, that's awesome. Like, what'd you get for Christmas? And he's like, <laughs> it's like, no, what'd you get for Christmas? I could tell that he was trying to hide from me uh, what he got for Christmas. Like, dude, you got to tell me. Uh, and so I could tell that he was getting red. And eventually he pulls out like a hot pink Air Apostle t-shirt. It is like this hot beat. And some of you are laughing because you're like, I had that in seventh grade. And so he has this hot pink Air Apostle t-shirt and like all the Abercrombie and Fitch and he smelled like he walked into an Abercrombie and Fitch. So immediately I had a headache. And so this, and if you're wearing that tonight, uh, that's awesome. I'm sorry. And so, but he's, he pulls out this thing and it's like, dude, why did your dad get you that? 
And he said, well, I mean, to be honest, the last time that we ever really had a relationship, I was uh, in middle school before he started doing this long distance thing. So that's what I was wearing back then. And he still kind of pictures me as that, like that middle schooler. So whenever he's in New York, he sees what all they're wearing. And I guess New York middle schoolers still wear that. And so he uh, bought him Abercrombie and Fitch and Aeropostale and all that good stuff. And I was like, why don't you say anything? And he just felt bad. And he's like, you know what? It's my dad. Like, I'm not going to call him out on that. But I asked him, did you ever say that you wanted that? No, no, I never said that. Even whenever I was in seventh grade, I never once said that. And it reminded me of the way that I feel whenever uh, at Christmas time or anytime that you're at a birthday, if you ever have that aunt or uncle that gets you like that $10 gift from like the Dollar Tree that like, honestly, you're never gonna play with and you're just sitting there like, it's an avocado, thanks. And they're like, that's you sitting there like, why would you get me checkers? Like I have like 18 and none of them are complete. Like why on earth would you get me this? And it's because honestly, they don't know you and they didn't ask and you never really said that you would. They don't have that relationship with you. And I feel like there's a similar situation going on here with David and God. You see, David has been a military man and he's been conquering all these different people, just got back from the Philistines. And if you've ever seen the movie Hercules, you know what the gods have. They got houses, they got temples, they got all that stuff. And the same is true about a lot of places in the ancient Near East, in the area that they're in. And so he had seen that all these other gods had all these houses. Like, you know what? You probably want a house of cedar. You probably want a palace just like mine. But the reality is, is that God sitting back saying, it's like, when did I ever say that I wanted that? I never said it to Abraham. I never said it to Isaac. I never said it to Jay. I never said it to any of y'all. I never said it to you. When did I ever say? And you know what? You're comparing me to a lot of people that I'm not. At my friend's dad, I almost said his name. My friend's dad was comparing him to a bunch of seventh graders that he's not a seventh grader, he's a sophomore in college. Kind of similar. I think that David in his mind was expecting him to be like all the fake gods that weren't even real, right? And was comparing what the God of the universe would want compared to a hunk of wood. And so we see, uh, then we go on and then we see this in this next section starting in verse 11, halfway through verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Real quick Hebrew lesson, the word house, and this is a professor of mine taught me this, the word for house is called buy it. The way that you can remember that is because whenever you're out house shopping and you see one that you like, you're gonna go buy it. And so a buy it is a house. And so what David has just said is, I want to build you a buy it. And then God turns it around and uses the exact same word on David saying, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a buy-it for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, the previous king, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And then Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. 
And so if you look at the life of David, honestly, it's pretty sweet. Like he's just out tending the fields one day and then he finds out, hey, I'm gonna be king. And it's like, this, his whole life is changed. He's given the best job in the world. And then year after year goes by and the king dies and then he becomes the king of the Southern kingdom and then of all the kingdoms. And then they get the ark in the right spot. And then he has this interaction with God. And then finally he's given the best promise ever that from his line, there would be somebody, somebody in his offspring, somebody in his line that would establish a kingdom that would never die. If your job is the king, this is like, I'm gonna be the best king ever, right? Like I'm gonna be the best at my craft. Nobody's ever gonna take me over. We're never gonna have to worry about war because we're gonna be a kingdom that never dies. God said, this is amazing. But what David doesn't realize is that what he's talking about, and some of you might already have skipped ahead, is that God is promising that he is about to send Jesus, that he is about to send Jesus. If you look at some of the gospels accounts, you'll see like a genealogy that goes from Jesus all the way through to David, and then sometimes all the way through to Adam. The reason for that is because it's so important given the promise that God gave David that Jesus was gonna come out on the other end and David doesn't know what that's gonna look like. But then I think about my own experience with promises and I don't know what you're thinking about your experiences with promises, but sometimes I feel like promises just aren't as promisey as they might've been whenever you're a little kid, right? That you're promised something or maybe you make a promise and then you experience this, that things are different now. Things are different now. You begin a relationship and it's like, hey, we're never gonna leave each other, all that good stuff. And then a year down the road, it's like, hey, I just kind of realized you're really annoying. Things are different now. We don't need to be together anymore. Or maybe it is a little bit more serious and it's one of your friends. And a lot of you may have experienced this with college. It's like, hey, we're best friends. We're in high school. Like I, we're bros, right? Like bro. And then you move away and then you're four hours away from each other and then texting becomes a little bit harder and calling and you just really never talk. And that friendship that was once like, you're my bro for life is just, hey, things are a little bit different now. Or maybe you have experienced that at home with parents that is like, hey, we love each other. We're gonna be together forever. But then five years is long and then 10 years is longer. And then you get down and you're that sophomore, right? In high school or freshman in high school. And then your parents, like my friend, they decide that things are different now and we don't wanna to be together the way that we once did. But we did make a promise, but we were promise makers and did not follow through in being promise keepers. So what type of God is the one that we serve? What, where does he fall in this category? Are things different for him? And so we look to Psalm, but some of you are like, it's somewhere in the Psalms. We're getting to the Psalms right now. Uh, so Psalm 89, we're getting to it. This is in verse one, uh, verse one through four. It says, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all the generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And so what we're seeing right here is a Psalm from a guy named Ethan the Ezraite. Ethan the Ezraite, say that 10 times fast, uh, but after this. But seriously, like this guy, he, we don't know much about him. We see him one other time in a list of very, very wise people in First and Second Kings. But what this is, is writing from the standpoint of somebody who is in the kingdom 
of Israel, given all the events that have happened. And so looking to this to see, hey, what does he think of the entire situation? Because now we know that it's not just God that knows it, not just David and Nathan, the prophet, but it's also other people in the kingdom. Oh, and I failed to mention the fact that if you are good at math and if you know what comes next in the story, if you were here last week in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we have that scene that I recapped earlier with David and Bathsheba. Talk about things are different now. If I were God, I would be hearing that and be like, hey, I made the best promise of all time that Jesus was gonna come through your lineage before you decided to do the unthinkable. I made the best promise, the one that you are gonna be remembered for the rest of time as being the king that established a covenant with me to where I was gonna bring about the savior of the world. But then you slept with another guy's wife and then killed him to try and hide it. You know what? Honestly, David, things are different now. But we keep reading to see what Ethan, the Ezraite, and what the rest of the kingdom and people a lot like him might be thinking about this covenant. In verse 28, it says, I will maintain my love to him forever and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. So he's got the story right in terms of what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. And so what we see is that God through uh, this Psalm right here through Ethan is like doubling down on the covenant that he made in 2 Samuel chapter seven. Again, he says, even if they fall away, even if they violate, even if they like do the opposite of what I've said, I am gonna remain faithful. And I think about anybody in my own life and like, I would not be that faithful. I wouldn't be that good of a friend. I don't have many friends that would be that good of a friend if I did like a certain number of things, right? But we see God doubling down and putting to rest an idea that I feel like I think a lot, even if it's subconsciously, or at least I show that I think this through my actions, that God's goodness is dependent on my goodness, that God's faithfulness is dependent on how faithful I am, that God's perfection is dependent on my perfection, that I've got to live up to something in order for him to live up for me. But the reality is, is that God's perfection is not dependent on our perfection. God doesn't have to depend on us. In fact, it goes back to this idea of building these houses of cedar, right? Is that David thinks, hey, in this moment, I can do something for God. That God, he's in this tent, like he's probably cold in there. He doesn't have much protection. And he offers this house to him. And then God turns around and says, you know what? I've never asked for this because I'm spirit. You're flesh and bone. You're the one that needs protection. I'm good. But in fact, I'm gonna turn around and I'm gonna give you something better than you could ever imagine. I know you didn't ask to be the one that established the line that would result in Jesus, but I'm gonna give you something absolutely incredible. And even if you mess up, even if you do the unthinkable, I am not gonna go away because my faithfulness is not dependent on your faithfulness. Put another way, your faithlessness, this isn't talking about belief in God, but just in a moment responding in, hey, I like just rebel against you. Your faithlessness is not 
gonna wreck God's faithfulness. Your faithlessness doesn't wreck God's faithfulness. And we see this time and time again. We see it in all of our own lives. And we're gonna go into that in just a second. But the Psalm continues. It would be one thing if it just ended right here, like, hey, God's faithful and all that. But we see one more little bit into Ethan's heart that I think a lot of us in the room can resonate with. Lord, where is your former great love? This is verse 49. Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? God, where is your great love that in your faithfulness you swore to David? God, where are you? And we got to remember, like, why would Ethan be feeling this? And so we think a little bit into the timeline that was made. Uh, David is anointed king and then uh, Saul dies and then he becomes king over the southern kingdom and then all the kingdoms, right? And then the ark is established. They can have this interaction and relationship with God. And then this whole thing with building God a house, David and Bathsheba. And then on the very end, we see the promise has been made. Our faithlessness does not wreck God's faithfulness. And then it's waiting on the promise. So Ethan is stuck in this time between the promise maker and the promise keeper. He is stuck in between a time of, hey, you have made this covenant, which is like an agreement with David and when Jesus is actually going to come. And I feel like for many of us in the room, we can resonate with this. We can resonate with this. And we know from uh, this book, and we know from many of our own testimonies, and we know by what many of us in the room believe, and I don't know what you believe walking into this room tonight, but something that I believe is that Jesus did come and Jesus lived a perfect life and he died and he rose again so that we might have a relationship with God. And so we see that there was some faithfulness there, but then Jesus made some promises, didn't he? He made some promises that he was gonna come back and that the pain and the suffering and the sorrow, one day it's gonna be no more. And so we are stuck kind of like Ethan in between a promise made and then a promise kept of Jesus whenever he left and gave us his spirit and then whenever he's coming back one day. And so I feel this tension right here. So why should we trust that he is going to do the things that he said? Well, I believe the same reason that David trusted the things that he said, because he did it before and he'll do it again. Because David was told, hey, you're gonna be king. And then he was stuck in between the promise made and the promise kept. And eventually the promise was kept and he was made king over all of Israel. David was stuck in between and Ethan was stuck in between the promise made that uh, Jesus was coming. And at this time, they just knew the offspring that was gonna establish the kingdom. And then Jesus actually coming. And then for us in our own life, we're stuck in between Jesus saying he's gonna come back and make all things new and then him coming back and making all things new. But for you, it might be a lot more simpler than that. It might be, hey, I'm not experiencing the joy that I feel like I should be experiencing on a day-to-day. -day. Life is just kind of hard right now. And I know that you've made a promise that you are going to come through for me. I know that you've made a promise that through your spirit, I'm going to experience joy. And so I am waiting on that and I believe and I trust that you are going to bring joy. Or maybe you're stuck saying, hey, I have a lot of anxiety right now and I'm not experiencing any peace. And you lean into the promise that, hey, in my spirit, you will have peace. In my spirit, I'm gonna bring about peace and trusting in him that peace 
is coming and that peace is there today. And that's something that you can choose today. And if you're anything like me, you hear those things and you think, but, oh God, and you might be thinking, but Chad, you don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the things that I've been through. And I think one of the reasons why we are told about the story of David, because that story does not help us like David, right? You kind of think David's a big jerk in the story of David and Bathsheba. Like nobody likes him in that story. But if David could do that and his faithlessness in a moment did not wreck God's faithfulness in his life and Jesus still came, then we can have confidence in that he is gonna come through for us because your faithlessness does not wreck God's faithfulness. And so I'm gonna ask the band to come on out here uh, and we're gonna sing another song here in just a minute. But one of the things and one of the applications that we have for this is because in trusting this, if you believe this, in trusting this, we know where to build our life, right? We know where to put our life. This isn't just in anything. And we've, a lot of us in the room have put it into many different things, into uh, working really hard and uh, fighting our way out of the situation we're in by studying and becoming workaholics. And some of us have put it in other things like friends that ultimately, like we talked about earlier, is like those aren't necessarily forever. But then some of us have turned to other things and struggled with porn addictions and, and drugs and whatever that might be and just trying to feel something else. But in seeing this, we are promised that we serve a God who is faithful, that we serve a God who is coming through for us, that we serve a God who is our rock and our protector and our fortress. And one of the reasons why I think that God uses the language of a buy-it, uses the language of a house, is because he doesn't need protection, right? But what he offers us is that he is going to be our buy-it that he's gonna be the house, that he's gonna be our rock, that he's gonna be our protector, that he is gonna be the one that sustains us in the moments that we need it most, regardless of our faithlessness in a moment, because your faithlessness does not wreck God's faithfulness. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your example through David. Thank you so much for the Psalm from Ethan, that we may be able to see people at their worst. And it's sometimes in those avenues that we get to see you at your best, that we get to see you love us in the midst of not the easy moments in which each one of us can love one another, but God, you love us in the moments that it would be impossible for me to. I don't know what it would feel like to give somebody the greatest gift that could have ever been given and for them to spit back in your face. But God, we do that to you daily. But the amazing news is, is that you love us the same, that you love us so much that you decided to become flesh and give all of yourself for us. God, thank you that our faithlessness does not wreck your faithfulness. 
and that we might know that you are our protector, that you are our sustainer, that you are our shield, that we can build our lives on you because you are the rock that will not fade like so many other things in this world and so many other things in our life. Give us eyes to see that that is true. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray these things. Amen.